This session is from the 2023 Shepherds 360 Church Leaders Conference. For more information, please visit shepherds360.org. Well, today I'm speaking to you on the topic of the three grave diggers who dug a grave for God. Friedrich Nietzsche was a German philosopher who proclaimed the death of God. He wrote in vivid terms about the demise of God. Do we not hear the noise of the grave diggers who are burying God? Do we not smell God's uh, decomposition? God's too decompose. God remains dead. We have killed him. How shall we, the murderers of all murders, comfort ourselves? Who will wipe the blood from off of us? Wow. Nietzsche died in the year 1900, and he doesn't tell us who the grave diggers are. But what I do is, and by the way, I should mention this also, I've written a new book that is going to be out for you next year, God willing. It's already basically finished, but needs editing and all. It'll be out in September next year, entitled The Eclipse of God. And the lecture that I'm giving you is one of the chapters in the book. And also the conclusion of this conference when I speak on the topic, Is God More Tolerant Than He Used to Be? That also is another chapter of the book. So I'm giving you uh, a thing. But who do you think um, Nietzsche might be referring to when he said the grave diggers have dug a coffin for God? Well, I think number one on my list would be Karl Marx. Marx, uh, of course, lived at a time when he saw that there was oppression. The proletariat, of course, were being oppressed by the bourgeoisie. So he looked at this, and there was oppression. There's always been oppression in the world. But his solution was the imprisonment, and it became the horror of the world. Because what Marx said is, number one, if you're taking notes today, Marx spoke against God as ruler. He spoke against God as ruler. Why? He believed that oppression was the key to history. And he also believed that it was very important that the family be destroyed. In the Communist Manifesto, he speaks about the abolition of the family. Why? Because the family itself is a unit of oppression. Men oppress their wives, parents oppress their children, they take them to church, and God is the ultimate oppressor. So God doesn't exist, it's a fantasy, but what you have to do is to destroy belief in God, and oppression becomes the key to history, and because people fight over land and over property, if the property all belonged to the state, the state could divvy out the wealth in accordance with fairness. You wouldn't have this disparity. Everybody would be equal. Everybody would be happy. And so he called for a revolution whereby the state would take over all of the property. And you know what happened? And all of the wealth. You know what happened? The two revolutions, the one in China killing millions upon millions, the one in Russia, and the ongoing impact of Karl Marx on our culture. 
He is still ruling much of the world from the grave. There's more I could say about it, but what we have to do is hurry on. There's critical theory today, critical theory that has to do with, um, you know, the whole idea of gender identity, but also racism. Saul Alinsky, who lived in Chicago, saw that Marxism could be applied to race. And we certainly see that in the whole racial conflict today where you have such things as, um, you know, the um, equality, gender, what, what is it exactly? I, I forget, I've written about it, but where you have racial conflict intentionally bringing about chaos. And that was very important to Saul Alinsky. Through the providence of God, I met someone who worked with Saul Alinsky, and he told me that Alinsky used to say to them, don't solve problems, use them. He said, we had many good ideas to help the under-resourced communities of Chicago, but he was not interested in that. He said, these are conflicts that we can use. So the whole idea today of where the races are in conflict with one another, dependent upon the color of your skin and not the content of your character, all of that grew out of Marxism. The very idea that um, defund the police. People don't see the connection, but you see, Karl Marx believed that human nature was basically good. And the only reason people did crimes is because they were oppressed. Remove the oppression. Police are oppressive. Remove the oppression and everybody will get along. It's because of oppression that people are committing crimes. And so socialism was born, the idea that we should all be equal. There's so much more. I've written about this in uh, two books, one entitled We Will Not Be Silenced and the other in um, No Reason to Hide. Except to say this, there was a kibbutz in Israel that wanted to run the kibbutz according to socialist principles where everybody gets paid the same. Well, some people slept in until 10 o'clock. They got the same as those who got up early and worked. Eventually, people were taking such advantage of it that they realized that socialism became a paradise for parasites. And that's exactly what socialism is. And it strives for equality. We should strive for equality of opportunity equality in terms of the value of every human person. But if you say there should be equality of outcomes, that's equity, and you destroy human ingenuity, not only that, see, Karl Marx taught that there should not be freedom of the press and so forth. Why? Because he says the proletariat, excuse me, the bourgeoisie, take advantage of it, and therefore they will press forth their argument, and because they're wrong, we should not allow them to speak. Is it any wonder that conservatives today are not allowed to speak on university campuses, and if they do, all kinds of trouble ensued? Well, I think that one of the grave diggers was Karl Marx, who attacked God as ruler, and man had to rule. I mean, Marx, you know, he wrote poems, I want to destroy this pygmy world. 
definitely demonic in his teaching, but it has taken hold in our university campuses, and there are probably some reasons for that. The second destroyer that really influenced Nietzsche even more was Darwin. Very briefly, Darwin gave rise to the idea of eugenics. Why? Because he visited some of the primitive tribes and he said some were of doubtful species. And not only that, this is a very key idea as far as I'm concerned. When Darwin said the baboon is our grandfather. Now, if the, now Darwin himself, I think, believed in God. He certainly didn't believe in Christ. But he opened the door. If Karl Marx opened the door to dethrone God as ruler, then Darwin dethroned God as creator. He opened the door to the idea that you could have a creation without a creator. And if it is eugenics, why? Because if you have survival of the fittest, why don't you help the race along in its evolutionary spiral upward. You know, because of my studies of Hitler and so forth, I've read uh, most of Mein Kampf, which is Hitler's book, and you read chapter four and you almost think that he's, you're reading Darwin. Great influence. But ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, here's the deal. If Darwin is correct, that uh, the baboon was our grandfather and we came up through the animal world, like the monkey said in the zoo, am I my keeper's brother, he asked. <laughs> if Darwin is correct, there is no argument against abortion, there's no argument against infanticide, there's no argument against transgenderism, all of these things and uh, euthanasia, all of it becomes legal because we are basically animals and out in the farm where I grew up, if an animal was born deformed, we ended its life out of sheer misery. Why don't we do that to adults? Because Darwin taught there's no difference between us in kind, only in degree. We are highly more evolved, but there's really no fundamental difference between us and the animal kingdom. And from this, you even have the animal rights movement. You know, Rebecca and I live in a very uh, progressive neighborhood, and so this coming weekend, we've been invited to an animal rights barbecue. <laughs> but there is no argument uh, I mean, there's so much that could be said. You see, what happens is the reason that the animal rights thing is, and that's why New York is having trouble taking care of the rats, because rats are our distant cousins. They're very intelligent. They know that rats have to be exterminated, but they're very careful because rats are really related to us. We're all related to the animal kingdom. And if we exterminate rats, well... The argument against exterminating humans is not very powerful. The problem is that if you raise animals and give them the importance that you give humans, you actually degrade and devalue human beings. I want to tell you this. I had lunch with a 
uh, an attorney, very influence, influential Christian attorney about three weeks ago. He said that he studied philosophy and he discovered that he was told the only coherent view of giving human beings dignity is the Christian view. Namely, that we're created in the image of God. But then the professor went on to say, but of course we can't accept that because we don't accept God, we don't accept creation. But the Christian view is coherent. So Darwin, he attacked God as creator. The next one is Freud. Freud attacked God as lawgiver. Freud attacked God as lawgiver. If you read Freud, and of course, Charles uh, Truman, who was mentioned in a previous seminar in his uh, big, thick book about, uh, you know, the history of the self, he points out that Freud's main teaching is that sexual pleasure is the route to happiness, and it is really the fundamental way in which people are satisfied is through sexuality. So he attacked God as lawgiver because as far as he was concerned, all different forms of sexuality can take place as long as they are pleasurable. This is known as the pleasure principles given to us by Freud. Now, the next domino to fall, brothers and sisters, in our culture, I believe, and that of course was for emphasis, I believe that the next domino to fall is pedophilia. Pretty soon, we're going to have to accept that. I mean, not us, but I mean, the culture is going to have to. You already have it in Kinsey, who lived in the 1940s, writing his books about the sexuality of men and women. I will not even describe for you what he did to children and to babies in terms of sexual pleasure horrible. Up until now, the left has been against that because they say, you know, children do not have, uh, they don't have consensual sex. You have to have consensual sex. But all that you need is some professor to say that sexual pleasure for children is a good that they should experience. And if you withhold it from them, You are doing them harm. That's all that you need. And no doubt there are those out there who are going to write books and papers like that because when God is absent, there is no boundaries as to what you can do and what you can't do. Anything is permissible. And by the way, even amen is permissible. I love to preach in places where they say amen once in a while. Does anybody ever say amen when you preach? Maybe at the very end. (laughs) I mean, I heard about a pastor who during the benediction said, immediately following this service, I'd like to speak to the board. Two-thirds of the church stayed. Be clear when you communicate, right? (laughs) Ezekiel 16. God says to Israel, Israel, you are offering your children to foreign gods, children whom you have born 
to me, even the children of pagans belong to God. And that's why I believe that all children who die go to heaven. And I believe that the uh, accountability, ability, I don't think we should talk about the age of accountability because but rather a condition of accountability because you can have somebody who's old, but he has a mental disability. He would be viewed as a child. I tend to think that that age is much older than perhaps we realize. But God says the children are born to me. And when you have drag queens coming into our schools and flaunting this kind of sexuality, uh, trying to break down any natural ex uh, resistance that children have to this kind of sexual expression, you know that we as a nation might be at the end of the road. And uh, what we need to do is to recognize that we are in a time when God is eclipsed and when there is an eclipse of God Darkness overtakes the land. I just came from another seminar there that was in the uh, chapel. And uh, I think the man's name was uh, Mark, who gave an excellent exposition of transgenderism. Why not? Why not if God is dethroned as creator, as lawgiver, and as ruler, why can't I make myself into whatever I need to be? Now, if you were in that session, it was absolutely excellent. I would add one thing. If your child comes to you and says that I'm trans, what you need to do is to recognize that self-perception is not always an accurate guide as to who you are. A young woman who struggles with anorexia, she looks in the mirror and believes that she is overweight when in point of fact, she's starving herself to death. Self-perception is not an accurate guide to who you are. There are people in the psych ward. I heard about one man who genuinely believed he was Napoleon. He said, I am Napoleon. The guy next to him said, um, who told you that you were Napoleon? He said, God told me that I was Napoleon. The other guy said, no, I didn't. So here's the thing, in Europe, one hammer blow after another was directed against culture and against the church by these three dra uh, grave diggers, but there were others, of course. Now, I want to go back to Nietzsche. Nietzsche was brought up in a Lutheran home. He professed respect for religion but um, as he spoke about the death of God, if I might liken it to this, it's like a teenager waking up in the middle of the night, being awakened and told, look, just want you to know that um, your parents are dead. So Nietzsche is trying to figure out what do we do when we stare into the abyss and there is no God there. In order to understand Nietzsche, I'm going to give you an illustration that I don't think you will ever forget, and I think it's going to be very helpful to you. 
Nietzsche is a very complicated person. What he writes is sometimes obtuse and complicated, but I can put it for you this way. Nietzsche had a great respect for the teachings of Darwin. Not so much Marx because, you know, Marx talked, talked about equality. Nietzsche said there's no such thing as equality in nature. So another philosopher really helped me to understand Nietzsche by using this example. Let's suppose that um, you were to go to a sheep and say to this sheep, what is good for you? The sheep would say, well, I'll tell you what I like. I like to graze along a hillside on a beautiful sunny day, surrounded by other sheep that are just like I am, okay? What if you went to a wolf and said, what is good for you? The wolf would say, what is good for me is to take a sheep and shred it and gobble it down. Well, how would you like to call a peace conference and say, you know, here's sheep and here's wolves. Can we agree on a common morality? Can we agree about anything? Of course you can't. By the way, I should have pointed out that Nietzsche actually says that we came from apes, which means that he accepted Darwin's theory that the baboon is our grandfather. But anyway, you can't have a unity between sheep and wolves. Now, Nietzsche cursed Christianity. I mean, he said the harshest things you could probably imagine against Christianity. Why? Christianity was teaching us to live like sheep in a world that was run by wolves. The meek shall inherit the earth. Give me a break. When did the meek ever inherit the earth? Forgive one another. Be humble. All of those things. Look at history. History belongs to the strong. History belongs to the wolves. Is it any wonder that Hitler kept a copy of Nietzsche next to his bed and gave a copy to uh, Mussolini? And Hitler, maybe after reading Nietzsche, he made the statement, he said, why cannot we be as cruel as nature? Why can't we be like wolves? We're certainly not going to get anywhere being like sheep. So here's the thing. Here you have this cultural stream by these philosophers. Now, Nietzsche wanted to be very respectful for God. As I mentioned, he professed a respect for religion. But in one of his books, he has a man running into the cathedrals of Europe and singing a requiem to God. In other words, we want to honor God's funeral. So this guy goes into the cathedrals of Europe, and then Nietzsche says, the cathedrals of Europe have become the tombs of God. I don't know if you've ever been to Europe, but the cathedrals are either empty or they've been transformed into libraries, bookstores, oftentimes mosques. If you go to Bedford, England, where John Bunyan was, that cathedral, that church is now a nightclub. The cathedrals of Europe have become the tombs of God. In Europe, there is no culture war like there is in the United States because the culture has gobbled up everything. 
Now, mind you, there are churches, and I've been in some of them and preached in some of them, that are being true to the gospel. But for the most part, Europe is totally secular. In Europe, you're almost accused of being racist or intolerant if you defend freedom. You shouldn't be defending freedom because you're intolerant of those who don't believe in freedom. It's insanity. But that's what happens in Europe because of the death of God. And Nietzsche's prediction turned out true. The cathedrals of Europe became the tombs of God. Well, you say, Pastor Lutzer, so what in the world does this have to do with us? Thank you so much for asking that question. Because what I want to do is to give you some applications of what this is all about. First of all, I want to say that another reason why the churches had collapsed in terms of their impact is not only because of these threats and these teachings that came outside the church, but also within the church. Sometimes within the church is the greatest enemy of the church. I'm thinking, for example, of Friedrich Schleiermacher. You have to be German to say that. You know, German is the only language in which you could say, I love you, and it sounds like a threat. <laughs> really? You want to settle that out in the hall? Schleiermacher taught in the 1700s that religion, no, he didn't believe the miracles of the New Testament. He was brought up in a pietistic home, but nonetheless, he believed that religion was a feeling of dependence, in which case one wag said, that means that my dog is very religious. If you have a dog, you know that he has a great feeling of dependence, especially when he's hungry. Okay. So you can trace all of the spirituality that's going on in America. Oh, I'm spiritual, but I'm not, um, I'm not religious. I'm spiritual, but I don't believe in doctrine. So you have your own God. Your God is in your mind, and he's fashioned according to your liking, and you have this feeling of dependence. This destroyed the power of the church because the, the pastors, for, by and large, had nothing to preach. In many instances, I've told you I've led tours to the sites of the Reformation, and the church in which Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses, I stayed there for a service because I understand some German. This was over the noon hour. It's called a Gottesdienst. The pastor got up and he read from the Old Testament in honor of the Jews, the New Testament in honor of the Christians, and the Quran in honor of Islam. And he said, here in the church, we honor all three of the world's religions. And there, 10 feet from the pulpit, Martin Luther is buried. So that's the church in Europe. Now, again, you ask the question, well, how does this relate to our ministry here? Could I give you three or four lessons. I say this with a heavy heart, but we cannot take the continued existence of our churches for granted. We cannot take the continued existence of our churches for granted. You know, Mark Bailey, he said something about uh, the, uh, I will build my church. 
And I don't know exactly what he said. I was sitting at a place where I couldn't hear too well. But so often people quote that and they forget. Marxism destroyed the church. We were in Albania in April in a preaching tour and up until about 1992 when communism fell, there were virtually no Christians in Albania. There were wee little pockets, but there was no existing church. You have, for example, Islam all throughout North Africa. North Africa was essentially Christian. It's the place of Tertullian and Cyprian and all those men. Totally there. I was in Morocco about 25 years ago and told that in all of Morocco, there are maybe 200 Christians. I think there are a lot more now, but 200 Christians. And there is no Christian church in Morocco, period. And then secularism can destroy a church, though it does it much less uh, violently. I think that when Jesus said that, he was referring to his own death. I will build my church, the gates of Hades, which are coming against me, because then he, in context, talks about going to Jerusalem to die and so forth. What he's saying is, is that I am going to die, but those gates of Hades will not prevail against what I'm going to do. And oftentimes when you have a church that has been shut down in one area of the world, the church may be growing in another area of the world, so the church continues to grow. But my burden is this. Let's not naively think to ourselves, oh, things are always going to be like they've been here in America. We're trashing our freedoms. We're trashing... I... Um, after being in Albania and other communist countries, years ago we were in the Soviet Union before the walls collapsed. I want to tell you today that it's just heartbreaking. People are speaking against America, they're trashing America, and they have no idea what they're doing in comparison to other countries of the world. We have a constitution, we have a form of government where we can elect people, where we can still have input this is unusual. Most of the countries of the world are being run by dictators and tyrannists. There's tyranny in the world. Look at the Middle East even and all of the terrible things that are happening over there. So for us to just be going on our own way, doing the same thing in the same old way because after all, we're going to take the continuation of our churches for granted. No, they'll probably be there in our lifetime, but the generation that follows us, let us never take the existence of our churches for granted. The day might come in America when churches will be few or even non-existent. If that frightens you, I intend that it frighten you. Second, a church or a nation can move to a dark place or a person. A church, a nation, or an individual can move to a dark place one small step at a time. A church 
or nation can move to a dark place one small step at a time. You look at history, even the uh, demise of the churches of Europe, it didn't necessarily happen overnight. Nazism came because of the tremendous power of propaganda. I could speak about that because I've written about propaganda. The purpose of propaganda is to so shape people's view of reality that even when confronted with a mountain of evidence, they will not change their minds. So propaganda is powerful, and people were caught up in these cultural streams. And um, if you disagreed with the Nazi agenda, you kept your mouth shut because of the pressure that was upon you. You were identified, you were spoken against, and all that. So even people, in fact, I'm talking about my third point now, but I'll get to it. Even people who disagreed with Hitler often kept their mouth shut. Now, the church in Germany did much more than most people realize. I mean, there were 700 pastors and priests that went to prison and concentration camps because they stood against the agenda. But what's happening in America? We're living at a time when being nice is more important than being right. And we should be nice we should be loving, but love and niceness can never be a substitute for truth. Love, uh, I'll even take some weak amens, and there were a few back there. Did you say amen? Okay, good. Um, Love cannot be an excuse for compromise. And nowhere are we more tempted to compromise than when it comes to sexual issues. Amen. Thank you. I realize that when your son or daughter comes to you and says you're, they're trans or they're gay, tremendous amount of pressure upon you to both love them on the one hand, but to let them know that the path is destructive. We cannot simply accept that and say, well, we have to overlook those passages of the Bible that are so clear regarding sexual matters. And uh, what we have to do is to simply love. Love is love. Pastors, look me in the eye. Love can be evil. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they didn't stop loving. They just started to love pleasure, love themselves, love money. They kept loving, but it depends what you love. And Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And 1 Corinthians 13 says that love rejoices in the truth. So an undefined love leads us to despair it leads us to uh, down a very dark path, and it can all be done under the banner of love. Third lesson, good people can be intimidated into silence. Good people can be intimidated into silence. One of the things that happened in Nazi Germany is if a pastor got out of line, 
He was vilified. He was uh, spoken against. Charges were directed toward him that weren't true. You can imagine the tremendous pressure today with social media. People can go online. They can call you names. They can write articles about you that aren't true. But it doesn't matter because they're out there. And so, in a sense, we are facing an issue that no other generation has faced. And the comment was made in the previous seminar that I was at about cell phones. And I know that some of you are taking notes on your cell phone. At least I assume you are, though I wouldn't want to necessarily bet on it. I heard a lecture by a woman this summer. It was fantastic. She said that, uh, no, I can't even tell you that because my time is running out. I read an article or a book the other day about social media. Oh, be sure to not overdo it. You know, have um, groups that you meet with all this. Really? Tell your young people that. I read another one in a Presbyterian magazine that was a very good conservative Presbyterian magazine. And it says, you'll never control social media until you realize it's uncontrollable. You know, it's like one woman said, I didn't realize that when I gave my daughter a cell phone, I might as well have given her a first shot of heroin. Okay, you can't take heroin and say, now, heroin has its benefits, but what you have to do is to control it. You say, old Pastor Lutzer, do you have a cell phone? Yeah, it's in that bag over there that this man who's been assigned to me is taken care of. <laughs> but not until I realized that it was uncontrollable did I really start to control it. Young people today don't read anymore. They're into videos, and they sit there, and they play their games, and they communicate with one another. I'll tell you, I'm going to pray because my time is pretty well up, but what we have to do is to recognize we're up against demonic deceptions. The previous, I again refer to the previous seminar I was at. If you weren't there, get it online later. But he pointed out that if you give your kids social media and a cell phone, in effect, don't be surprised if they come to you and say that I'm trans. All that junk is out there and young people are being targeted. I'm going to close, so don't uh, leave quite yet. We'll bring the plane down. Niemöller in Germany was tried for abuse of pulpit. Abuse of pulpit was speaking against the regime. Hitler, you remember, he met with the pastors and said, uh, all that I want is peace. You be sure to speak to the church, but I will take care of the German people. When it was time to leave, Niemöller was the last to leave the room and chose his words very carefully and said, you know, you said that we are to take care of the church. He would take care of the German people. But we also have a responsibility to the German people given to us by God. Hitler turned away without a word. He was very angry that night. Niemöller's study was burned and people who had signed on to the pastor's declaration took their signatures off and so forth. And he was severely criticized for, for confronting Hitler directly. When it was time for his trial, he knew he was going to be found guilty. 
That was, of course, a foregone conclusion. But he was in a cell, and there was an underground tunnel that a young German guard came and uh, unhooked him and walked with him to the courtyard, which was just a little ways away. Niemöller is walking along and suddenly hears words. He wondered where they were coming from. It was as if he was, they were bouncing off the walls. And the words that he heard is, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. Those that run into it are safe. You remember that verse from the book of Proverbs. Then Niemöller realized it was the young German guard who is speaking to him and encouraging him. Niemöller said, that young guy will never know the blessing that he was to me. And he said, I never saw him again except at a distance. I've often thought about that boy. He, often, he obviously grew up in Sunday school. He had a Christian background. But he got caught up, caught into the Nazi steamroller and ended up clearly serving the Reich. Of the 21 people in Nuremberg that were tried, of the 21, six were Catholic, 15 were Protestant. When the chaplain from America, this is fascinating, but I have to end here. When the chaplain from America spoke to them and had services, most of them could all quote the Lord's Prayer. They could quote Psalm 23 and all that. They were all brought up in the church but they all fell for the Nazi lie. I forgive me for the hilarity with which I began this uh, session. It was brought on by this pastor over here. <laughs> but I really do have a sincere heart, and I am very burdened for the churches in America at this hour. And uh, I have the privilege of speaking one more time, and that is... Uh, on the topic of, is God more tolerant than he used to be? We'll be closing out the conference Wednesday afternoon. Father, I pray that you might help this challenge to know that we have the privilege of ministering in some very difficult times. When so much is thrown at us, when discernment is so needed, and sometimes we don't know what to believe, we ask, Father, that you'll guide us and help us to make that balance between love and truth. And may we never compromise truth in the interest of love. And may we never compromise love in the interest of truth. We don't know how to do both. Help these dear people, Father, as we navigate these deep waters. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this session from the 2023 Shepherds 360 Church Leaders Conference. This material is copyrighted and may not be altered or sold. For information, please visit shepherds360.org.